Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter 11 What I Heard in the Apple Barrel. No, not I, said Silver. Flint was cutting. I was quite a master along of my timber leg. The same side I lost my leg, old Pew lost his daylights. It was a master surgeon, him that amputated me, out of college and all, Latin by the bucket and what not. But he was hanged like a dog and sun-dried like the rest at Corso Castle. That was Robert's men, that was, and comed of changing names to their ships. Royal Fortune, and so on. Now, what a ship was christened, so let her stay, I says. So it was with the Cassandra, as brought us all safe home from Malabar, after England took the Viceroy of the Indies. So it was with the old Walrus, Flint's old ship as I've seen a muck with the red blood and fit to sink with gold. "'Ah!' cried another voice, that of the youngest hand on board, and evidently full of admiration. "'He was the flower of the flock, was Flint. Davis was a man, too, by all accounts,' said Silver. "'I never sailed along o' him. First with England, then with Flint, that's my story.' And now here on my own account, in a manner of speaking, I laid by nine hundred safe from England and two thousand after Flint. They ain't bad for a man before the mast. I'll safe in bank. Tain't earning now. It's saving, does it? You may lay to that. Where's all England's men now? I dunno. Where's Flint's? Why, most of em are bored here and glad to get the duff. Been begging before that, some of em. Old Pew as has lost his sight and might have thought shame, spends twelve hundred pounds in a year like a lord in Parliament. Where is he now? Well, he's dead now and under hatches. But for two years before that, shiver my timbers, the man was starving. He begged and he stole and he cut throats and starved at that by the powers. Well, it ain't much use after all, said the young seaman. Tain't much use for fools you may lay to it, that nor nothing, cried Silver. But now you look here. You're young, you are, but you're smart as paint. I see that when I set my eyes on you, and I'll talk to you like a man. You can imagine how I felt when I heard this abominable old rogue addressing another in the very same words of flattery he had used to myself. I think if I had been able that I would have killed him through the barrel. Meantime he ran on, little supposing he was overheard. "'Here it is about gentlemen of fortune. They lives rough and they risk swinging, but they eat and drink like fightin' cocks.' and when a cruise is done, why, it's hundreds of pounds instead of hundreds of farthings in their pockets. 
Now the most goes for rum and a good fling, and to see again in their shirts. But that's not the course I lay. I puts it all away, some here, some there, and none too much anywheres by reason of suspicion. I'm fifty, mark you. Once back from this cruise I set up gentlemen in earnest. Time enough, too, says you. Ah, but I've lived easy in the meantime. Never denied myself a nothing a heart desires, and slept soft and ate dainty all my days but when at sea. And how did I begin? Before the mast, like you. Well, said the other, but all the other money's gone now, ain't it? You daren't show face in Bristol after this. Why, where might you suppose it was? asked Silver derisively. At Bristol in banks and places, answered his companion. It were, said the cook. It were when we weighed anchor, but my old missus has it all by now, and the spy-glasses sold, leasts and goodwill and rigging, and the old girl's off to meet me. I will tell you where, mate, for I trust you. But it'd make jealousy mong the mates. And you can trust your missus? asked the other. Gentlemen of fortune, returned the cook. "'Usually trust little among themselves, and right they are, you may lay to it. "'But I have a way with me, I have. "'When a mate brings a slip on his cable, one as knows me, I mean, "'it won't be in the same world with old John. "'There were some that was feared of pew, and some that was feared of flint. "'But flint his own self was feared of me.' Feared he was, and proud. They was the roughest crew afloat, was Flint's. The devil himself would have been feared to go to sea with them. Well, now I tell you I'm not a boasting man, and you seen yourself how easy I keep company. But when I was quite a master, Lambs wasn't the word for Flint's old buccaneers. Ah, you may be sure of yourself in old John's ship. Well, I, I tell you now, replied the lad, I didn't half a quarter like a job till I had this talk with you, John. But there's my hand on it now. And a brave lad you were, and smart too, answered Silver, shaking hands so heartily that all the barrels shook. "'And a finer figurehead for a gentleman of fortune "'I never clap my eyes on.' "'By this time I had begun to understand the meaning of their terms. "'By a gentleman of fortune they plainly meant neither more nor less than a common pirate, "'and the little scene that I had overheard was the last act in the corruption of one of the honest hands, "'perhaps of the last one left aboard.' But on this point I was soon to be relieved, for Silver, giving a little whistle, a third man strolled up and sat down by the party. "'Dick Square,' said Silver. "'Oh, I know Dick was square,' returned the voice of the coxswain, Israel Hands. "'He's no fool, is Dick.' He turned his quid and spat. "'But look here,' he went on, "'here's what I want to know, Barbecue.' "'How long are we a going to stand off and on like a blessed bumboat? "'I've had almost enough of Captain Smollett. "'He's hazed me long enough, by thunder. 
I want to go into that cabin, I do. I want their pickles and wines and that. Israel, said Silver, your head ain't much account, nor never was. But you're able to hear, I reckon, lestways your ears is big enough. Now here's what I say. You'll berth forward, and you'll live hard, and you'll speak soft, and you'll keep sober till I give the word. And you may lay to that, my son. Well, I don't say no, do I? growled the coxswain. What I said is, when? That's what I say. When? By the powers! cried Silver. Well, now, if you want to know, I'll tell you when. The last moment I can manage, and that's when. Here is a first-rate seaman, Captain Smollett, sails the blessed ship for us. Here's this squire and doctor with a map and such. I don't know where it is, do I? No more do you, says you. Well, then I mean this squire and doctor shall find the stuff, and help us to get it aboard by the powers. Then we'll see. If I was sure of you all, sons of double Dutchman, I'd have Captain Smollett navigate us halfway back again before I struck. Why, we're all seamen aboard here, I should think, said the lad Dick. We're all forecastle hands, you mean, snapped Silver. We can steer a course, but who's to set one? That's what all you gentlemen spit on first and last. If I had my way, I'd have Captain Smollett work us back into the trades at least. Then we'd have no blessed miscalculations and a spoonful of water a day. But I know the sort you are. I'll finish with em at the island, as soon as the blunt's on board, and a pity it is. But you're never happy till you're drunk. Split my sides. I've a sick heart to sail with the likes of you. Easy, old log, John! cried Israel. Who's a crossing of ye? Why, how many tall ships think ye now have I seen laid aboard, and how many brisk lads draw in the sun execution dock? cried Silver. And all for this same hurry and hurry and hurry. You hear me? I seen a thing or two at sea, I have. If you would only lay your course and a point to windward, you would ride in carriages, you would, but not you. I know you. You'll have your milk full of rum to-morrow and go hang. Everybody knowed how you was a kind of a chaplain, John, but there's others who could hand and steer as well as you, said Israel. They liked a bit of fun, they did. They wasn't so high and dry, nohow, but took their fling like jolly companions, every one. So, said Silver, well, and where are they now? Pew was that sort, and he died a beggar man. Flint was, and he died of rum at Savannah. Ah, they was a sweet crew, they was, only where are they? But, asked Dick, when we do lay them athwart, what are we going to do with them, anyhow? There is the man for me, cried the cook admiringly. That's what I call business. Well, what would you think? Put em ashore like maroons? That would have been England's way. Or cut em down like that much pork? 
That would have been Flint's or Billy Bones. Billy was the man for that, said Israel. Dead men don't bite, says he. Well, he's dead now hisself. He knows the long and short on it now, and if ever a rough hand come to port, it was Billy. Right you are, said Silver, rough and ready. But mark you here, I'm a easy man. I'm quite the gentleman, says you, but this time it's serious. Duty is duty, mates. I give my vote. Death. When I'm in Parliament, and riding in my coach, I don't want none of these sea lawyers in the cabin a-coming home unlooked for like the devil at prayers. Wait is what I say, and when the time comes, why, little rip! John, cried the coxswain, you're a man. You'll say so, Israel, when you see, said Silver. Only one thing I claim. I claim Trelawney. I'll wring his calf's head off his body with these hands. Dick, he added, breaking off, you must jump up like a sweet lad and get me an apple to wet my pipe like. You may fancy the terror I was in. I should have leapt out and run for it if I had found the strength, but my limbs and heart alike misgave me. I heard Dick begin to rise, and then someone seemingly stopped him, and the voice of Hans exclaimed, "'Oh, stow that! Don't you get sucking of that bilge, John! Let's have a go of the rum!' "'Dick!' said Silver. "'I trust you. I've a gauge on the keg, mind. There's the key. You fill a pannikin and bring it up. Terrified as I was, I could not help thinking to myself that this must have been how Mr. Arrow got the strong waters that destroyed him. Dick was gone but a little while, and during his absence Israel spoke straight on in the cook's ear. It was but a word or two that I could catch, and yet I gathered some important news, for besides other scraps that tended to the same purpose, this whole clause was audible. Not another man of them will jine. Hence there were still faithful men on board. When Dick returned, one or another of the trio took the pannikin and drank, one, to luck, another, with a, ears to old flint. And Silver himself sang in a kind of song, ears to herself and old your luff, plenty of prizes and plenty of duff. Just then a sort of brightness fell upon me in the barrel, and looking up I found the moon had risen and was slivering the mizzen-top, and shining white on the laugh of the foresail, and almost at the same time the voice on the lookout shouted, "'Land ho!' End of chapter 11 Chapter 12 Council of War There was a great rush of feet across the deck. I could hear people tumbling up from the cabin and the forecastle and slipping in an instant outside my barrel. I dived behind the foresail, and made a double toward the stern, and came out upon the open deck in time to join Hunter and Dr. Livesey in the rush for the weather-bow. There all hands were already congregated. A belt of fog had lifted almost simultaneously with the appearance of the moon. Away to the southwest of us we saw two low hills, about a couple of miles apart, 
and rising behind one of them a third and higher hill, whose peak was still buried in the fog. All three seemed sharp and conical in figure. So much I saw almost in a dream, for I had not yet recovered from my horrid fear of a minute or two before, and then I heard the voice of Captain Smollett issuing orders. The Hispaniola was laid a couple of points nearer the wind, and now sailed a course that would just clear the island to the east. "'And now, men,' said the captain, when all was sheeted home, "'has any one of you ever seen that land ahead?' "'I have, sir,' said Silver. "'I've watered there with a trader I was cooking.' "'The anchorage is on the south behind an islet, I fancy?' asked the captain. "'Yes, sir. Skeleton Island, they calls it. It were a main place for pirates once, and a hand we had on board knowed all their names for it. The hill to the norad they calls Foremast Hill. There are three hills in a row running southard, four main and mizzen, sir.' But the main, that's the big un with the cloud on it, they usually calls the spy-glass, by reason of a lookout they kept when they was in the anchorage cleanin'. For it's there they clean their ships, sir, asking your pardon. I have a chart here, said Captain Smollett. See if that's the place. Long John's eyes burned in his head as he took the chart, but, by the fresh look of the paper, I knew he was doomed to disappointment. This was not the map we found in Billy Bone's chest, but an accurate copy, complete in all things, names and heights and soundings, with the single exception of the red crosses and the written notes. Sharp as must have been his annoyance, Silver had the strength of mind to hide it. "'Yes, sir,' said he, "'this is the spot to be sure, and very prettily drawed out. Who might have done that, I wonder? The pirates were too ignorant, I reckon. Ah, here it is, Cotton Kid's Anchorage, just the name my shipmate called it. There is a strong current round along the south, and then away up north up the west coast.' "'Right you was, sir,' said he, "'to haul your wind and keep the weather of the island. Leastways, if such was your intention as to enter and careen, there ain't no better place for that in these waters.' "'Thank you, my man,' said Captain Smollett. "'I'll ask you later on to give us a help. You may go.' I was surprised at the coolness with which John avowed his knowledge of the island, and I own I was half frightened when I saw him drawing nearer to myself. He did not know, to be sure, that I had overheard his counsel from the apple-barrel, and yet I had, by this time, taken such a horror of his cruelty, duplicity, and power, that I could scarce conceal a shudder when he laid his hand upon my arm. Ah! said he. This here is a sweet spot, this island. A sweet spot for a lad to get ashore on. You'll bathe and you'll climb trees, and you'll hunt goats, you will, and you'll get aloft on them hills like a goat yourself. 
Why, it makes me young again. I was going to forget my timber leg I was. It's a pleasant thing to be young, and have ten toes you may lay to that. When you want to go a bit of exploring, you ask old John, and he'll put up a snack for you to take along. And clapping me in the friendliest way upon the shoulder, he hobbled off forward and went below. Captain Smollett, the squire, and Dr. Livesey were talking together on the quarter-deck, and, anxious as I was to tell them my story, I durst not interrupt them openly. While I was still casting about in my thoughts to find some probable excuse, Dr. Livesey called me to his side. He had left his pipe below, and, being a slave to tobacco, had meant that I should fetch it. But as soon as I was near enough to speak and not be overheard, I broke out immediately. "'Doctor, let me speak. Get the captain and squire down to the cabin, and then make some pretense to send for me. I have terrible news.' The doctor changed countenance a little, but next moment he was master of himself. "'Thank you, Jim,' said he quite loudly. "'That was all I wanted to know,' as if he had asked me a question. And with that he turned on his heel and rejoined the other two. They spoke together for a little, and though none of them started or raised his voice, or so much as whistled, it was plain enough that Dr. Livesey had communicated my request— for the next thing that I heard was the captain giving an order to Job Anderson, and all hands were piped on deck. "'My lads,' said Captain Smollett, "'I've a word to say to you. This land that we have sighted is the place we have been sailing to. Mr. Trelawney, being a very open-handed gentleman, as we all know, has just asked me a word or two and as I was able to tell him that every man on board had done his duty, alow and aloft, as I never asked to see it done better, why, he and I and the doctor are going below to the cabin to drink your health and luck, and you'll have grog served out to you to drink our health and luck. I'll tell you what I think of this. I think it handsome. And if you think as I do— You'll give a good sea-cheer for the gentleman that does it. The cheer followed. That was a matter of course. But it rang out so full and hearty that I confess I could hardly believe these same men were plotting for our blood. "'One more cheer for Cap'n Smollett!' cried Long John, when the first had subsided. And this was given with a will. On the top of that the three gentlemen went below— and, not long after, word was sent forward that Jim Hawkins was wanted in the cabin. I found them all three seated around the table, a bottle of Spanish wine and some raisins before them, and the doctor smoking away with his wig on his lap, and that I knew was a sign that he was agitated. The stern window was open, for it was a warm night, and you could see the moon shining behind on the ship's wake. "'Now, Hawkins!' said the squire. You have something to say. Speak up. I did as I was bid, and, short as I could make it, told the whole details of Silver's conversation. Nobody interrupted me till I was done, nor did any one of the three of them make so much as a movement, but they kept their eyes upon my face from first to last. "'Jim,' said Dr. Livesey, "'take a seat.' 
and they made me sit down at a table beside them, poured me out a glass of wine, filled my hands with raisins, and all three, one after the other, and each with a bow, drank my good health and their service to me for my luck and courage. "'Now, Captain,' said the squire, "'you were right, and I was wrong. I own myself an ass, and I await your orders.' "'No more an ass than I, sir,' returned the captain. "'I never heard of a crew that meant to mutiny, but that what signs before, for any man that had an eye in his head to see the mischief, and take steps accordingly. But this crew,' he added, "'beats me.' "'Captain,' said the doctor, "'with your permission, that's Silver, a very remarkable man.' "'He'd look remarkably well from a yard-arm, sir,' returned the captain. "'But this is talk. This don't lead to anything.' I see three or four points, and, with Mr. Trelawney's permission, I'll name em. "'You, sir, are the captain. It is for you to speak,' said Mr. Trelawney, grandly. First point,' began Mr. Smollett, "'we must go on, because we can't turn back. If I gave the word to turn about, they would rise at once. Second point, we have time before us.' at least until this treasure's found. Third point, there are faithful hands. Now, sir, it's got to come to blows sooner or later, and what I propose is to take time by the forelock, as the saying is, and to come to blows some fine day when they least expect it. We can count, I take it, on your own home servants, Mr. Trelawney, as upon myself declared the squire. Three, reckoned the captain. Ourselves make seven, counting Hawkins there. Now, about the honest hands? Most likely are Trelawney's own men, said the doctor. Those he picked up for himself before he lit on silver. Nay, replied the squire. Hands was one of mine. I did think I could have trusted hands, added the captain. "'And to think that they're all Englishmen,' broke out the squire. "'Sir, I could find it in my heart to blow the ship up.' "'Well, gentlemen,' said the captain, "'the best that I can say is not much. "'We must lay to, if you please, and keep a bright look-out. "'It's trying on a man, I know. "'It would be pleasanter to come to blows. "'But there's no help for it till we know our men.' "'Lay to and whistle for a wind. That's my view.' "'Jim here,' said the doctor, "'can help us more than any one. The men are not shy with him, and Jim is a noticing lad.' "'Hawkins, I put prodigious faith in you,' added the squire. I began to feel pretty desperate at this, for I felt altogether helpless. And yet, by an odd train of circumstances, it was indeed through me that safety came.' In the meantime, talk as we pleased, there were only seven out of the twenty-six on whom we knew we could rely. And out of these seven, one was a boy, so that the grown men on our side were six to their nineteen. End of chapter 12